something sort of caught my attention, and, I, and, and I'm really sort of embarrassed to admit this, but an old vlog called Lonely Girl 15 it involved like dead drops and codes and secret messages and a, a really weird story. And so I dove sort of deep into it, but I really enjoy this idea of things hidden in secret places and going through the energy of finding them. I think that's happening inevitably, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Like whatever I'm interested in, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna make that. I get a call from a bar here in town, Axelrad in Houston. Hey, we have an upstairs area. I'm familiar with your work. Would you come and produce a piece upstairs for all the weekends of October? It's a champagne problem. It's like, you got so much champagne. <laughs> what are you gonna do with all that champagne? It's so great. It's the loving living in that world. Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. I left New York around 2005 uh, to attend to some family things in East Texas. So moving from New York City back to small town Texas. And all of a sudden I was just sort of in the middle of nowhere. If Jeremy Barber's life was a screenplay and I was editing, I would probably advise the writer to make it a touch less formulaic. It is fantastic. Jeremy has trained with the comedy monolith Second City founded the improv-focused Beta Theater in Houston, and, of course, owns and operates Dino Lion, a, quote, creative video house, which rocks the tagline projects we love with people we love, and does everything from video marketing to, of course, immersive experience design. My read on the Dino Lion brand as a creative expression of Jeremy's style is bright and brash, and I think can only really be described as brilliantly refined chaos. But that's just my read on it. Go check out the reel for yourself after the show. Also fantastic. Jeremy's way of thinking about the creation of immersive experiences is incredibly innovative. So again, for you practicing or aspiring immersive creators out there, these two episodes will hopefully spark the same kind of curiosity and excitement that I walked away with. And for the immersive fans, adventurers, connoisseurs, have you ever heard of a one-person immersive experience and a plane. Once again, fantastic. Let's go. I think we are good to hit the big red button and, and get her on. <laughs> hit the big red button. Let's do it. <laughs> awesome. All right, we are off. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Um, so to start right off, if you could choose a favorite fictional or fantasy world that you would want to create some kind of immersive experience in, slash that you would want to live in and play some role in what comes to mind you know i have i i have a couple of answers to this question uh so i will a lot of my work centers around music a lot of my immersive work centers around music original music I, just the last three or four pieces that i've made or put up involve all original music and are very music oriented and i am a big uh, Bill Callahan fan. Okay. I don't know if you listen. I don't know if you listen to him uh, at all, but I very much would enjoy sort of creating a somewhat psychedelic, somewhat folksy 
universe that's centered around some of his music or maybe an entire album. Uh, some of his most recent releases have been like one track or two tracks. So it's kind of weird to think of it as an album, but I, I really like his, his music and I really like his aesthetic. Um, and I think I would really enjoy building a world like that. And in terms of a world I'd love to live in and participate, I, I wish there was a, uh, a Lynch, a Lynch world, you know, a Lynch universe, you know, they have that bar in Paris, um, what's called club silencio, but I, uh, I haven't been there, but I really wish there was like a vast David Lynch universe, uh, to sort of participate ongoing. I went to like David Lynch has this, uh, f- festival that's sometimes in LA and sometimes it's in, in New York called the festival of disruption. And actually went a couple of years ago in Brooklyn and I was really expecting it to sort of be this universe to live and explore in, you know, you're calling it the festival of disruption. Uh, David Lynch is the centerpiece or the <laughs> linchpin. Yeah, that's hilarious. Anyway. <laughs> and I, I, uh, but what it was is it essentially, and just, you know, fair warning, uh, the festival of disruption is a giant commercial for transcendental meditation. And that's great and awesome and powerful stuff. Uh, but it is not, a festival of disruption in the sense of like disruptive art or, or disruptive storytelling or uh, things like that, which is sort of what I was hoping that it would be. And uh, we had a good time, but it wasn't what I wanted. And it really is sort of like a museum of David Lynch's past work. And so it's, it's not really forward thinking aside from like the individual transcendental meditation, like sales pitch. Um, Right. Right. So um, anyway, so those are the, <laughs> I kind of got off track there, but no, 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 it's fine. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. TM, yeah. TM is definitely interesting. I haven't experimented with that kind of, or that variety of meditation too much, but I'm definitely familiar with it, but I would expect something likewise a bit different from, from the disruption festival. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's, it's fine. It's great. It's classy. Uh, there were some real, I saw some cool shows, some cool, you know, performances, but all in all, I would really love it if it was like a, a whole universe that you step in and it's just bizarre and it has unusual characters and unusual, um, I don't know, installations. You just, it's just, it's, it's ripe for it. Um, I haven't gone so far as like content, uh, contact the, the David Lynch foundation to say, Hey, could I create something? Um, but I really, I could see, I could see loving living in that world. Definitely. And um, that that's a phenomenal starting point for when we jump into the make it immersive segment in a bit here. Um, mm. But before we dive down uh, that side path, um, could you, for our listeners, just explain uh, what is Dino Lion? Well, Donaline is a production company that I founded, I guess, about six and a half, uh, coming up on seven years ago. And it, you know, I met a guy here in Houston and we, uh, he, he is a musician and an artist and we partnered up and created this company. And it is primarily a video production company. Um, and over time, it became more of a creative video production company. And over more time, we uh, dabbled into uh, immersive work or site-specific work. And 
and he eventually kind of moved on. He has a daughter and moved on to some other things that were a little bit more stable. But for the almost a year now, I've been just continuing the work. For a lot of 2019, um, I've been sort of steering Dynaline into a lot more of experiential or immersive work. Um, made several several shows this year. I'm trying to count as, as I'm trying to answer that question. Uh, one, two, three, and then I'll have a remount of a show here. And we also, like I brought a show to Houston. I brought the Broken Bone Bathtub show to Houston this oh, summer. Oh, no so. way. No way. I just had a wish of on. Um, yeah, I listen, I listen to that podcast. I, I you know, I do, I, I think Siobhan's work is, uh, pretty amazing and, and challenging. And I think uh, I'm really glad to see that she's documenting the kind of her final trip out to LA. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. I'm, I'm incredibly excited for that documentary. Yeah, me too. Um, so so uh, that's, that's what Dynaline is. Dynaline is a pretty production company, a creative production company. Uh, I, I, I've been doing a lot of, um, finishing up a documentary, finishing and working on a new documentary and creating sort of a lot of immersive content this year. Oh, very, very cool. So what, what was the path that led from starting from mainly video work and then moving slowly into site specific and immersive experiences? I think in order to answer that question, we have to sort of go way back. I, um, was an actor, a uh, singer. Um, I was in comedy in New York in the early 2000s. Did some improv training through Second City. Uh, lived in Times Square and operated and managed a theater. Um, was did, did a bunch of commercial acting and got into uh, producing, got into producing film. I had a friend uh, named Matthew Diffie, who's a cartoonist who had written this short script, and he asked me to produce it for him. Um, and I did, and I did a terrible job because I'd never done that before. <laughs> and, uh, but we, it was really fun. And I really sort of caught the bug of being behind the scenes and the collaborative work that happens in development and in independent DIY production. Uh, Diffie and I went on to produce, um, some live shows as well. We did this, uh, anyway, helped them with this show called the steam powered hour, which was a bluegrass comedy show in, in Brooklyn, Anyway, and then I left New York around 2005 uh, to attend to some family things in East Texas in a small town called Pollock, Texas, which is near two other very small towns called Lufkin and Nacogdoches. And all of a sudden, I was just sort of in the middle of nowhere, and I started a production company, um, uh, not creatively named East Texas Video. Uh, we were in East Texas. I made videos, and I started produce, writing and producing local commercials, and I did a lot of that, and it was fun. But I was uh, I was really bored, um, and I was really itching to like create something, create independent work, and something sort of caught my attention. And I and, and I'm really sort of embarrassed to admit this, but I started following um, an old vlog called Lonely Girl 15. And what caught my attention about it was I read an article about how the, the, that video series was fake, it was written, it was presented as though it was a real thing. And so I dove sort of deep into it 
And through that, there was an alternate reality game sort of built within Lonely Girl 15 uh, by, I think, a separate producer, or at least an adjacent producer, called Cassie is Watching. And I was amazed. And it was like, it involved like dead drops and codes and secret messages and a, a really weird story. And this is in 2006, 2007. Uh, kind of time. And I decided that what I wanted to do with some time in East Texas was create my own video episodic alternate reality game. And so I did. I created this series called Madison Atkins. I sort of built it adjacent to the Lonely Girl 15 universe. Lonely Girl sort of ran its course. And so a lot of kind of participants of that community uh, came on board and, and played this, this game. And then a couple of years after that, 2009, I rebooted it and expanded it, the Lonely Girl 15, uh, the, sorry, the Madison Atkins series. And I made a couple of other games and collaborations with other alternate reality game creators. And so I think, I think to really kind of go way back to these things that inspire me about interactive or immersive work, we go back to sort of a independent uh, alternate reality game producing background uh, of mine. I think that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, most definitely. So tell me about the moment where you decided to go from consuming the Cassie is watching alternate reality game and watching Lonely Girl 15 and kind of realizing what that is. But the moment that you went from watching to creating the moment that you decided to create Madison Atkins. Well, I think oh, I just was I was watching Cassie is watching and. Uh, it was very geographically uh, centered around Los Angeles. Right, and right. I was in deep East Texas. And so I wanted to create something that would uh, engage people from all over the country. So I created a series of dead drops. So I was inspired by the idea of creating some dead drops that were all over and seemingly random. And so, uh, and this was fun. And it was fun to contact friends who lived all over the country and lived all over the world and say, Hey, I'm going to send you something. Can you hide it and tell me where you hide it? And then sort of, manufactured experience around that um, that lived within the kind of context and mythology of the plot of Madison Atkins. And I, I think, I don't know. I, I was thinking about this over the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, my aunt pulled out all of these pictures uh, and there's a bunch of pictures of a very small me who is carrying a hilarious colorful Easter basket and is like, haunting the yard for Easter eggs. And I just think from a very young age that I really enjoy this idea of things hidden in secret places and going through the energy of finding them. And I think over time, as I became a storyteller, uh, that I have enjoyed putting some story context over that. And so I think, I think I've been a creator and a producer for a long time. And then I just decided, like, watched Cassie is Watching and watched London Girl 15 and decided that I wanted to create in this space. And then after doing it for the first version of Madison Atkins, you, it's really very special. Like, that kind of experience and that kind of engagement with an audience is very personal. You know, uh, Madison Atkins, spoiler, uh, she, she dies in the version one. Uh, she dies in 1.0, and she dies quite suddenly, and she dies specifically because of advice the community gave her. And um, 
I think there's a lot of work that kind of came out in that time that was like a choose your own adventure moment where you turn a page and you're like, does the character do A, turn to page X, and does the character do B and turn to page Y? And Madison Atkins wasn't built that way. Madison Atkins was built in a way in which that you had to get to know Madison. And the more you got to know her like authentically and, and with kindness, the more she would talk with you and, influ- and let you be sort of an influence and a, and a collaborator in her journey. And when something would arise, she would kind of go to the community, who the people who are the players, and, uh, and she would kind of convene with them and ask and listen to them. And if they were like, you should run, she would run. And if they were like, you should stay, you should stay. Um, so I think it's really t- difficult for me to pinpoint an exact moment where I was like, okay, I want to make in this space. Um, I think in general, I'm a maker uh, and if there's, even if it's something I don't know how to do at all, uh, I will just decide to, to try to do it. So I, I think that's happening inevitably, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Like whatever I'm interested in, I'm like, oh, I'm going to make that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. Um, there is, there is that drive to create. Um, so I'm curious like about the juxtaposition between creating independent work and working in ARG and creating there in relation to doing video and branding work and marketing work. Like what does that interplay feel like texturally within the creative process for you? Well, I, I think, um, I think they're at odds in, in one sense in that one makes money and one uh, does not make nearly enough money. And so, you know, especially in ultra reality game or video episodic stuff, you know, you have to be either sponsored or getting uh, millions of hits in order to, to make that even remotely financially feasible. Uh, in more of the immersive work that I've been making since being in Houston, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of goodwill from a vast community of people who may not even fully understand the work they're making. And that is at odds with fully funded video production or creative work that is, you know, branded or for a client or, you know, uh, so in that regard, they're at odds. And, you know, I think some things that uh, I've learned over the years is to find clear ways of separating sort of those teams uh, find clear ways in which the, the team that makes the sort of paid video production work is separate from the team that is creating the immersive art or uh, experiential uh, performance. And that, and that's just because I think, I think it takes so much time to make both that there really isn't time to do both. In that regard, I find that uh, on the other hand, I guess is, is a better way to say it. I, I, I think that the, the work complements each other is because I, I tend to create from what I know, uh, utilizing the resources that I have. So there are a lot of video elements uh, in my immersive work. You know, like we did a, a, a VIP experience for um, this show we did in, in January where we took a guy up in uh, an airplane, a small like four seater, and we had created sort of an ASMR um, 
meditation and we had a, a very slow and, you know, designed for the, the space of the cockpit, this dance and this dancer in the space with them. And so we, you know, we flew this guy up for 20 minutes in this meditation that lived sort of in the universe of this show. And, you know, so like these kind, and then I shot it 360. Um, and we, we, we intended to use that, that 360 VR sort of thing within the show, the live show itself, but we opted not to, but this is the kind of thing um, that, you know, is because I'm a video producer and because I'm thinking in terms like this, that we're able to create uh, and I'm able to create sort of this content that is multimedia and is video influenced. It also tends to help with marketing um, as we have a lot of great video content. Content. I'm remounting a show right now called The Rabbit Cage for the end of December in 2019 here. And because I've shot so much coverage of the original run in October, um, we're building marketing stuff now, which we're a little late on, but we're building it now. So I think in some ways it complements. And uh, there are some things I think to note that are at odds, I guess is all that I'm saying. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to the degree to which it's important to or potentially necessary to keep the two things compartmentalized um, to an extent, but it makes sense that there's a logical interplay of the two, um, especially with marketing of an immersive experience kind of being one of the most tricky parts logistically in the process of creation. Um, Cause oftentimes, especially if you're creating an experience that is trying to maintain enough secrecy to have a lot of surprise within the experience itself. It's like, how do I communicate this thing without saying too much? Oh, I a hundred percent agree in, in that regard. I mean, even like I, when this piece is sort of a, I don't know, a, like a deconstructed haunt um, that I put up in October, the rabbit cage, even the, even the release or the trigger warnings, I felt like were very much too spoilery. Um, you know, and we, we we balance between we try to balance between getting earnest consent and knowledgeable consent from our audience members for the things that are going to happen in the experience, but we don't want to spoil the whole experience. And and so it's it's a it's a balancing act. And you know, I think that in terms of shaping marketing so that it doesn't spoil, I think that's doable. I think that's easy. Um, but I definitely, you know, like we, we had a, we had a lady, a press lady in town, um, write an article about our last piece and she didn't want to go through the piece cause she was afraid. So we sort of talked through this piece and then she wrote an article that was just a, like a huge spoiler. <laughs> it's just like a walkthrough. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I didn't ask her to take it down or anything like that, but it, it was the kind of thing where well, we're happy for the press and we're happy to be supported by the press, but, um, you know, I need to be more careful about like what I put on the record and what I don't put on the record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to me that you say that, insofar as what you're creating marketing materials wise and maintaining that secrecy, it's easy. I think you're the first person who I've uh, encountered that has said that that's an easy task. Um, so maybe that's part of, part of the, uh, interdisciplinary, um, set that you have in particular, um, in relation to creating. Yeah, it's what I do. So I, I, I don't 
feel, yeah, that doesn't feel complicated to me. I mean, also, I think the work that I've made um, is complicated. And so it's actually hard to spoil. Um, I think this in the piece I'm working on, we're remounting it. We're expanding the piece, changing it from, from our previous run. And it's, it's a complicated story. And, you know, even if I like list it out, like with a voiceover is like, this character does this and this is what happens. I, I think that it would be hard to follow. <laughs> so um, part of the, the, part of the things that I love about immersive work, or lo- at least I love uh, put into my worst immersive work by design is sort of a gathering place at the end of the show. So people can talk and compare notes and say, Oh, did you see this scene or did you do this? Or how did you interpret that moment? Or what do you think is even happening here? So I like, I like that aspect of it, that, that it is so complicated that you are compelled to reach out to other people and sort of have this communal moment in which you ask whether that's some people, you know, or strangers. Um, And this, you know, I, I, this is not my idea. This, you know, even in sleep no more, you finish sleep no more and you're in, you're in the Mandalay bar and you're like, talking with other people and strangers and all over the world and saying, Oh, did you see this? Did you like this? What did that mean? Or did you, Oh, you had this one-on-one. And so I feel like the nature of immersive work, um, or I guess the ceiling of immersive work can be uh, a lot higher in terms of its complexity than maybe straight plays or, uh, you know, other, other kind of experiences. Yeah, most definitely. I was, about, I was about to say concerts because uh, a lot of stuff I do is centered around music or around an album. Yeah, and I think that applies there as well because, I mean, whether it's uh, an immersive theatrical experience or a festival, a music festival, like there are the genres of experience that are designed not that are not designed for you to be able to po- even possibly experience everything that's inside of it is allows for a different variety of creative freedom. I feel like, um, and I that, do. And I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, and a brief note on the idea of having a space afterwards to talk about it. I think that that is oftentimes something that is incredibly undervalued, um, in a lot of experiences or a lot of places like people forget how gratifying it is to have that post post-experience, post-game, um, frothing to use the, uh, LARPer term there. Um, mm-hmm. because that is so much, it's like, I mean, obviously it's not half, but it is such a substantive part of being able to add another bit of social immersion onto it. Just being like, oh my gosh, there's no one else in the world who can really understand this except for the people who just went through this with me and have being able to revel in that shared experience is so, so wonderful. Well, I think a production is lucky if it's half, you know, I think that if half, if half of the experience is you going home and thinking about it and you getting online and and diving into forums and you, uh, after a show interacting one-on-one or, you know, in small groups about this piece, trying to unravel it because you're curious and you're compelled to come back again and you're compelled to further understand the source material. I mean, I think, if, if that's what you do to your patrons, then you're, it's a champagne problem. It's like, you got so much champagne. What are you going to do with all that champagne? It's so great. I mean, that's, I think 
that's sort of what I aim for. And, and there is, I think, a tipping point between getting way too convoluted. Uh, and, you know, but I, I definitely think that if you can create intrigue and interest, that is 50% of the experience, then I think you're, I think you're hitting home runs. Yeah. Yeah. That's the golden ratio of immersive. Um, (laughs) So what, what drew you to, um, to the rabbit cage and wanting to create in the haunt genre? Well, you know, I have, I've wanted to create and I've wanted to make a haunt for quite a while. And the thing that really got me into sort of the immersive scene was blackout. And I'm not exactly sure how many years ago, less than 10 more than five or six. And uh, I went to New York and I saw a blackout piece and it was really, really inspired. I'm seeing several pieces from those guys. I like those guys. Um, uh, and they just celebrated 10 years. And um, I think they make interesting work. Um, I, I went to it one October and then I immediately the next day went to sleep no more. So that was like my caught a bug to create in the space. Wow. But the yeah. Haunt, yeah. Creating in the haunt space is, is makes, it's, you know, it makes a lot of sense that there are festivals like the Overlook film festival, which is a horror film festival that has a tremendous immersive uh, element. And, you know, you can go to that film festival and buy an immersive pass and basically not even see a film. You, you, you're just, you're just stacked with immersive experiences for four straight days that you, you don't even get, into seeing the film. Um, and I go to a lot of film festivals and I love seeing film. So, uh, you know, sacrificing that part of it for the sake of the immersive stuff just makes sense. Uh, haunted houses, you know, put you through, uh, in groups, you go from room to room, the experience is all around you. It's very much, uh, utilizing those mechanics that have translated to a lot of immersive work. And so I've wanted to make a haunt for some time. Um, I'm trying to think of other, I mean, I've, I've done some uh, experiences like uh, the tension guys. Um, There's, you know, Annie Lesser did some haunt stuff a couple, uh, I guess a year ago. Anyway, so I, I've gone to see a a bunch of haunt work in LA and New York and uh, I was inspired to create this piece. But I basically what happened is that in September, Early September, it might have been the end of August, but early September, either end of August, we get a call from a bar here in town uh, called Axelrad in Houston, which we like a lot. And they are like, hey, we have an upstairs area. We usually do a haunted house every year. I'm familiar with your work. Would you come and produce a piece upstairs for all the weekends of October? And, you know, I've... I am in transition, making a move out west. Um, I actually had started a sublet uh, in San Francisco. I uh, was planning to be out there <laughs> quite a bit. And so I called a couple of friends in town who I've collaborated with on, a, on some pieces. And I said, look, I would like to make this piece, but I know that I can't make it without your help. And would you be interested in, would you be interested in sort of, filling in the hole of me sort of being in and out of town a lot. And all three of them, uh, Rebecca Herpin, uh, Robert Lynn, Peter Zama, they all agreed to, to get on board. And, and then I, we just started sort of working on it. And within 30 days, we had the piece 
in a place and then we started you know rehearsing and running it and put it up and it had like a really nice four weekend run here in Houston it was really fun part two next week's episode has just a slew of tactics and interesting sparks of curiosity and excitement for all that's on the horizon of immersive entertainment from New Mexico to Louisiana this immersive region is heating up Meow Wolf, Strange Bird, The 13th Gate, and now Dino Lion flipping the script with The Rabbit Cage, they're round two with the show. Some of the best immersive in the country is in this area. Having lived in the Southwest for about three years, there is unequivocally a certain kind of magic in this part of the US. There's something in the water, and it seems to be sprouting a rather phenomenal brand of creativity. Oh, and one brief thing before you go. If you happen to know anyone who works in theater or live events, would you consider telling them about the Emergent Nation podcast? If you're listening right now, you probably at least suspect that immersive entertainment is going to significantly change the kind of things we think about doing on a Friday night. And for your friends, family, and colleagues that make their living on or around live entertainment, having a way to stay up to date with this inevitably disruptive wave that is immersive experience could realistically give them a meaningful edge in what they do. And of course, if you're listening, they would be in excellent company. Thanks everyone. I hope you have a fantastic Friday.